Okay. So welcome back, everyone. And we're going to move into the second session. Um, this is around that the theme of meaning and purpose. So coming to, you know, a, again, back to this definition, this working definition, this exploration of what Buddhist environmental chaplaincy might um, offer, this is moving into that sense of meaning and, and purpose that a Buddhist environmental chaplain um, could help offer. Um, and Carla Brennan, sitting next to me, is going to um, take us on that exploration together. And Carla is an insight meditation teacher in Santa Cruz, California, and um, a number of you probably know her already. She founded Bloom of the Present uh, Insight Meditation, and she's been teaching and offering classes and retreats um, for a number of years. She's been practicing um, in different Buddhist traditions since 1975 and um, has taught uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and she's also incorporated solo wilderness retreats into her own um, personal practice as well as um, integrated it into her teaching. So she'll share more, but um, she's going to take it from here. Okay. Great. So uh, let's, let's take a, a very short meditation, but just a minute to settle in. Feel your body and connect with the support, the sensations of the chair, the floor, actually the earth below you, supporting you in your posture. And take a moment to be clearly aware that you are a breathing body. Aware of the body as a whole. Aware of the wave of breathing that's coming and going in this living form. So again, it's wonderful to see all of you here. Some of you I know, and most of you I don't. I'm going to start with a, a few quotes. The first is from something I wrote years ago. Perhaps the deepest wound to our psyche comes from our inner alienation from the vast unfolding cosmos causing our fundamental experience of separateness. Modern humankind's most urgent task may be to rediscover our innate wildness, naturalness, and interdependence, lest we extinguish our spirit and destroy our planetary home. As Buddhists, we can share our tools of uncovering our deepest truths. We can join eco-psychology's mission to help guide humankind through the paradigm shift from the egocentric self to the egocentric universe. Ultimately, the ecological crisis is not inviting us to save this external planet, but is inviting us as part of the planet itself to awaken and to see our true nature. 
And then I added later, and save us all. <laughs> and this is Joseph Campbell. If we think of ourselves as coming out of the earth, rather than having been thrown here from somewhere else, you see that we are the earth. We are the consciousness of the earth. These are the eyes of the earth. And this is the voice of the earth. And lastly, from the Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah. Trees and vines can all reveal the true nature of reality. With wisdom, there is no need to question anyone, no need to study. We can learn from nature enough to be enlightened. So my, my question that I was given, <laughs> we'll see if I keep to it or not, <laughs> was what sense of meaning and purpose can people find in relationship to nature and the environment? I know I'm somewhat preaching or speaking to the choir, <laughs> and um, you all bring your, your own experiences and wisdom and knowledge, and we've seen that already. So um, I'm just uh, hoping that this will validate or stimulate or review some of what you already know. I'm going to include in this a little bit of my own path, my own story, and around um, what I would say a, a variety of, of convergent paths that have come together over a lifetime, which I think is the same convergent paths that have brought this eco-chaplaincy program uh, conference um, to manifest. And I'm guessing that some of what I share will m mirror the similar threads in your own life. I'm going to talk some about eco-psychology. Specifically, its emergence and, um, and its relationship to eco-chaplaincy. I, I see... Uh, I see eco-chaplaincy as a, um, an offshoot or one of the many manifestations from the emergence of eco-psychology. And then I want to share some of the principles from eco-psychology and, and direct nature practice, which has been my practice. And, and then hopefully I'll have some time to explore your experiences along these lines, your meaning and purpose that has arisen from your relationship with nature. As you'll see in, in this, my emphasis um, has really been on the potential for, for a profound inner transformation and shifts and perceptions that is part of the Buddhist journey, that is part of the spiritual journey, and as I kind of alluded earlier, is necessary if things are going to change on the planet. I do, I brought a few handouts. Um, they're over there, so at your leisure, you can take one or not. just want to say one is from an a eco-psychology uh, piece I wrote in a monograph, 1999, a while ago. Rereading re it, I was, yeah, not too bad. <laughs> Some things I would change now, but um, it's called The Personal is Planetary. And then I have a, a memoir of an experience during a one-month-long solo wilderness retreat in the mountains of Colorado. And then I have a shorter piece that just uh, addresses wilderness practice called Awakening the Wild Within. So you're welcome to those if you like. Uh, you know, as I was planning this, and even this morning, it's like I just get more and more ideas and more and more inspiration and more and more things I want to say. So I'm, I'm going to have to work hard <laughs> to, to keep this in a TED Talk kind of context. So I'll, I'll start my story where, where many of you start your story, which is simply uh, my relationship with nature as a child. And um, it was kind of like what uh, Kirsten said. I, I found it as a place of solace, of refuge, of joy, of peace. This is just in the suburbs. This is not a super wild place. I found it a place of mystery and beauty 
and wonder. And fortunately, my mother's side of the family kind of encouraged that. And I, I used to say, if there was a God, I wasn't too big on God, but if there was a God, that's where God would be found. Um, in growing up, my, the human realm and my experience in the, of the human realm in comparison was painful, isolating, difficult, conflictual, stifling. So, um, especially, well, compared to the natural landscape, the human landscape seemed kind of barren and unfulfilling. And I think this discrepancy of my childhood between these worlds um, really fueled a future interest in all the things that I've done and directions I've gone. So just, uh, you know, time goes on, and by the time I was in high school, I got involved in what had been called the conservation movement, was now being called the environmental movement, and started an environmental group in high school, um, about 1970, and um, believe it or not, climate change was well known at that time. <laughs> we called it greenhouse gases, and warming overpopulation was a big issue. Um, so that's it really started a very deep and painful and often disturbing and despairing concern about where we're going as a species and a planet. You know, at that time, the environmental issues, there was the Vietnam War, there was nuclear threat, racism, what we called chauvinism at the time. And it was just difficult, not unlike today. And I also was coming face-to-face uh, -face with my own personal malaise, anxiety, depression, struggle, questions of angst <laughs> in life. Um, then in my early 20s, 1975, I discovered meditation and Buddhism. I fell in love with the practice and the teachings. And for me, finally, someone was talking about suffering and what led to suffering and the possibility of freedom. And also talked about compassion and interconnectedness, all of these seeming so vital and basic, but hadn't... Um, I didn't find in, in a lot of the places I was looking. I became a student of Zen, because that's Korean Zen. Um, and then um, I... A few years later, I started attending the newly formed Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Did lots of retreats there. Two weeks, one month, six weeks, three months. And at the same time, I was continuing to grow and nurture and deepen my love and connection and relationship with the natural world, the more than human world. And often at IMS, I would sneak outside <laughs> and do my, as much meditation as I could in the woods there. Also what was arising at that time was um, an interest in the Western view of mind and psychology and the psyche. I was finding that there were ways that the Buddhist tradition wasn't, for me, adequately addressing certain forms of suffering or the emotional world or some of our difficulties in ordinary life. And, um, but in my mind, that, it, that the psychological studies and Buddhist studies were extremely complementary, were really looking at the same issues but from slightly different angles. But at the time, they were at pretty much at odds with each other. They both kind of looked down on each other. <laughs> and there was a lot of judgment going both ways. Um, but f from my standpoint, the East needed the West, and the West needed the East. And I discovered um, psychosynthesis, which is a transpersonal psychology. I don't know any people familiar with psychosynthesis, which is always hard to say. <laughs> 
Um, and they said, described their tradition as being based on psycho-spiritual evolution, as one great unfolding. I became a, a psychosynthesis counselor, also a trainer of psychosynthesis, and also somewhere along there got a master's in counseling psychology as well. Um, so you can see Buddhism, psychology, nature, they're all kind of important but not quite connected. Then, in the early 90s, three, a lot began to happen. Some of you were around in the early 90s. Um, and three major things happened for me. One is I became a psychotherapist. The other two, one is eco-psychology, I would say, burst onto the scene. And um, I also met a teacher, John Milton, and his organization, Sacred Passage, and started doing solo wilderness retreats. So all of this was beginning to answer a longing and some discomfort I was having. Something had been missing in both Buddhism and psychology. And both, despite Buddhism's, um, you know, uh, may all beings be happy, and uh, certainly uh, an awareness of all sentient life, both these fields are pretty anthropocentric. If you're not familiar with that word, it's sort of human-centric. And by then, I was not so human-centric. <laughs> and also, a lot of the way, for me, Buddhist teachings were taught, especially by Western teachers, it still felt it's really locked into a kind of bit of a mechanistic, reductionist, disembodied, striving Western civilization attitude. And both were limited, and this is perhaps a little outside, I don't know if this is outside some people's experience, but what I would say limited by consensus conventional views of reality. Certainly Buddhism offered everything beyond that, but it wasn't really integrated. Um, And certainly, as you know, the Buddha spent his almost his entire teaching practice career outdoors, in nature, sitting at the root of a tree. So because of some of the experience I'd had, either from practice or being in nature, there was a sense of um, what I would say non-conceptual, non-separation and insubstantiality that I'd had that wasn't really being addressed in the way I needed it. And there was a way, I would say, I wanted to come back to what I knew to be a vibrant aliveness, a profound sense of mystery and not knowing, and what I might call uh, an immediacy of wakefulness. And that experience of being fully embedded and uh, not distinct from the more than human world. So, eco-psychology as I said, burst on the scene, although things have been brewing for at least 10 to 15 years. Some of you are familiar with Paul Shepard's Nature and Madness, Joanna Macy, John Seed, Council of All Beings, Despair and Empowerment. People have been taking people out into the wilderness in a healing spiritual way. There was Robert Greenway, Michael Collin, and many others beginning to address the transformative and healing power of being in wild nature. And Theodore Rozak's book, The Voice of the Earth, if you haven't read it, came out in 1992 and is still a powerful, powerful book. He coined the term eco-psychology. And he, like, he, that book is like, I was so thrilled. It was like those moments in life when 
everything comes together for a while. Then it sort of falls apart, but everything comes together. And it brought all those threads together. And it was a, it was a heady, thrilling time, the 90s, for eco-psychology and related fields. There was the right, a lot of writing, um, Chellis Glendening, David a- Abrams, Spell of the Sensuous, Ecofeminism was blossoming, deep ecology, both of those have been around, but they were also blossoming, environmental issues of environmental racism and justice, and a forceful challenge to consumerism and capitalism. Um, there's a lot of related terms, ecotherapy, green psychology, psychoecology, they're all grappling with this new field. I began, I was a psychotherapist by then, I began including um, eco-psychology in my private practice, meeting clients outdoors, giving them nature exercises, taught a couple classes on eco-psychology, and was, was um, asked to teach an eco-feminism course at a community, local community college. The other thing that happened for me was this introduction of solo wilderness practice, which is, I would say, the the single most powerful and transformative aspect. Um, This is with uh, John Milton, a teacher in the West, in Colorado, in Arizona. And he brought together Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism Dzogchen practice, Taoism, Qigong, and the basic Taoist understanding of um, deep nature, shamanic practices which challenge our conventional views, particularly Tibetan shamanism. So in those practices, Nature becomes your teacher. You just have to know how to be present and receive the teachings. So I did a number of these solos retreats, two, two one-month solo retreats, one in 95, one in 2001, and many shorter than a month. And uh, so during these retreats, you go off and you bring your, all your food for a month. You're alone. And you do practices in a, you don't hike, you don't explore so much. You're in one, one place and you become fully embedded in that place and let it teach you. So a few of um, things, I, so many things I could say about it. And I said um, all three of those handouts sort of address or talk about in some way this experience. So in those experiences, I would say you come face to face with the vast universe in its nakedness, in your own nakedness, literally, some of the time. And you're completely with yourself and your vulnerability. And you're stripped of almost everything that you define as yourself or you get normal comfort or distraction from. And the power of that is to break through concepts of self and other, of inner and outer, of human and non-human. And without the social structures, the human social structures, it's particularly liberating. And you get to develop relationships with other more than human beings. I had many of those with different animals. It was big bear country, had a few encounters with bears. So um, I'll say a little more about that. But... um, So I've gone on in different ways over the years to practice that way, but also lead some some retreats in wild nature. This is something I wrote about solo practice in the natural world. Civilization could be defined only half-jokingly as the organized elimination of naturalness the forced domestication of our spirit and soul. 
to rediscover our own true nature, which is inherently free and wild. We may need to step out of the cloistered isolation of modern culture and into the vast, mysterious realm of the more-than-human world that knows nothing of distractions, concepts, or duality. If we can truly leave behind for even a short while the relentless activities, habits, and props of Western civilization that serve to both numb us and reinforce our delusions, the walls and assumptions of our limited identities readily fall away. Our authentic self is reflected everywhere in the natural processes of life as inner and outer nature are reunited, mindful and open. We observe that the same forces that create the weather, the mountains and trees are at work within us. So, um, I can see my time slipping away, but I'm going to try to fit in what I can. Um, So here we are, talking about Buddhist environmental chaplaincy or eco-chaplaincy. Here I am, all these things coming together. Um, I wanted to say particularly a little bit about eco-psychology because I see it as the foundation for um, eco-chaplaincy. The interesting thing, as I said, the 90s was this explosion of writing and interest and inspiration. And then with Y2K, it all kind of went, it's been a little bit dormant since then. And I actually see with this and many other things happening in the world, um, David Loy's retreat center in the Rocky Mountains, there's lots of programs happening, that there's a a new resurgence after 15 20 years, there's another, it's coming, it's happening again. <laughs> Thank goodness. So what I'll say, uh, psychology, I mean, I have a background in psychology, you could say psychology is the study and healing of intrapsychic, the intrapsychic experience, relationship of self to self, and also the healing and study of the interpersonal relation, person to person. Eco-psychology is the study and healing of the relationship between humans and the more-than-human world, humans and nature. And the whole fact, simple fact, that we are obviously part of nature and we are profoundly deluded about that and disconnected and act as if we're not. So it's focusing on restoring our place, our natural place, our obvious place, our connected place in the universe. Eco-chaplaincy also, obviously, is a chaplaincy, so it includes the spiritual dimension, and we're here we're including the Buddhist dimension. Um, but I want to say eco-psychology from the beginning had a very strong spiritual side and also a very strong, even mystical side. So that's already sort of there. And I want to say that many deep ecologists and eco-psychologists uh, have Buddhist connections, are, are practitioners or have training in that because they've all found, as myself, that the Buddhist practice and views are so powerful and congruent with this. Here is my definition of eco-psychology. It is attempting to explain the causes and the connections between our individual, social, and global dysfunction in order to create powerful interventions for healing and change. To do this, it is integrating many of the insights of deep ecology, ecofeminism, transpersonal and conventional psychologies, earth-based cultures, and Eastern philosophies. At the heart of eco-psychology is the concept of eco-alienation, the belief that the wound to our psyche and spirit caused by humankind's estrangement from the natural world impairs us profoundly on every level of being, from the most personal to the planetary. Thus, we cannot adequately treat the individual or society without understanding and addressing the largest context from which our suffering arises. I... I, 
I, as I said, I have so many things I could say. I'll just do a little little piece. I have a whole historical analysis and over you know millennia. But one thing is is, is my sense that Buddhism and other related um, religions arose to deal with what was happening to human beings as they were becoming more and more separate, less and less embedded in their environment. So um, some other definitions of eco-psychology also talk about, um, talk about that we have a psychological interdependence with the natural world. We talk about, of course, our physical interdependence. But there's this sense, and if, I think for people who spend time in nature, it's kind of a no-brainer, but there's a psychological interdependence that is, has implications for our identity and health and well-being. And also, um, there's a, obviously a lot of talk about how the loss of our sensory and information processing ability because of our limited environments and our separation is actually um, diminishing us in many ways because we're built to be in reciprocity with energy in the environment. So I would go on to say that um, um, well, maybe I'll read one more. Humans are prone without the influence of nature. This is not me, this is somebody. <laughs> without the influence of nature, humans are prone to a variety of delusions. Yep. And that, to some degree, life in the wild forms the basis for human sanity and optimal development. Um, so there's been a devastating, in my mind, um, impact on the human species over the last uh, four to 6,000 years. Um, and it's just escalated, of course, with the effects of industrialization and technology. We're trying to find our place from hunter-gatherer to agrarian to urban to industrial to technological. One simple way I talk about this, and again, this is a much longer analysis, but I like to talk about we're, we're caught in diseases of disconnection, or I sometimes call it toxic fragmentation, where we're disconnected from our, our body, our senses, our feelings, nature, reality. There's this whole emphasis on shutting down and separateness, So this restoring the belonging, restoring these divisions, restoring all these splits and separations, which also have implications to the political world and uh, racism and gender issues. So, you with me? Is this making some sense? And... Again, this might be just a review for many of you. But from, particularly from my um, natural, my, my solo work in nature and my exposure to eco-psychology, I, I come up with some, some principles. And I just want to mention them. Some principles for transformation and meaning and purpose. They're included in one of the handouts that I have. So, and they're included in the exercise I'm going to have you do shortly. I do want to say that eco-psychology also addresses some other issues which I think other people today will be talking about, which is despair and empowerment work, um, how to motivate creative action um, in the world to heal and help, how to learn to, to come from... <laughs> excuse me, come from love and compassion rather than anger and fear and so forth. So there's other, other things going on. But these principles I want to just mention, I have in that article, I have a lot more examples, but because they're so congruent also with the Buddhist path and what the Buddhist practices 
teach us. And so when you bring the Buddhist practices into nature, you have what a friend of mine who also does nature practice, nature uh, teaching, you have the double whammy. (laughs) You have the power of practice and the power of nature coming together. So the first principle is reconnection with body and senses. And I think we're all familiar with this. And some of the things people said talked about how to get people reconnected. There's a rule both in meditation retreats and also in uh, nature retreats is that there's a three-day. Three-day, some of you might know that, the wilderness effect it's called. It takes three days, but there, after three days there's a shift in perception. There's a shift. There's, it's like senses come alive that's been dormant. And, and when that happens, it's like, it is a waking up. And that's what we're doing in our Buddhist practice. So awareness and attunement, our mindfulness practice, our awareness practices are so important and can take us, our, the possibilities are even further, I think, sometimes than the teachings even uh, Explain. So the next one is um, expansion of ego self to eco self. And of course, this means having experience beyond the separate self, anatta, foundation of Buddhism, and also foundation of eco psychology, where it's this idea of our self concept is incorrect and is actually much more expansive and open. And this is um, this, and some of the other principles here um, counteract what I call humankind's limitless capacity for narcissism. <laughs> and I would so unless that's really challenged in a very real way. Um, and I again believe direct contact in nature is one of the ways. We aren't jarred out of our self-absorption. The third principle I call restoring membership in the more than human community. We tend to go into nature as visitors. What if you become a resident? That also opens um, relationships to other beings in nature, like the ray that guided the person. And I've had many experiences like this. The next principle is what I call transformative transpersonal experiences. And the other word I use for this is magic (laughs) or shamanic experiences. And I find this very powerful and important and not so common in psychological or Buddhist worlds. But these really um, directly challenge our uh, conditioned consensus reality and make us question appearances and what's really true. Things aren't what they seem. We aren't what we seem. And you can have experiences that blow your mind. So the next two, and then I'll shut up (laughs) and give you a chance to think about these things. Um, The next one is compassion for oneself and all of life. So the expansion of the ego self to ego self, membership in the community, opening of the senses, all of that leads to a natural heart connection and opening. And I've seen this, and some of you have mentioned this already for oneself and all of life, just naturally, completely, without all the crazy barriers and neuroses that we carry around. And the last one, um, a clear sense of path and purpose. You're um, all familiar with the idea, or have been on Vision Quest. Um, what I'm proposing here is that all extended time in nature, particular alone, alone, a Vision Quest is a particular thing, But all extended time in nature alone, particularly, is a kind of vision quest. 
An insight and understanding can arise so clearly and powerfully from that. Um, and again, I've seen many examples of that coming from that experience. Okay. So, for this, um, this module, this is your turn now. We could do question and answer, but I want to get you, that can come later, I want to get you in your own experience. Did that affect my... No. I have an, a little exercise for all of you. You want to pass it out? This is a reflection. And I want to say there are two exercises, and you're only probably going to have time for one. One's on one side and one's on the other. And um, you can read both sides and then choose one side to complete, and then you can take it home and complete the other side. My plan is then to break into dyads, to share a little bit about what came up, and, oh, I need one myself. Thanks. And then, um, so the point isn't to get all the answers or to get the answers right or to, or the point is to, for this to stimulate your own experience of purpose and meaning and depth from your relationship to the natural world. So one side is called autobiography of your relationship to the natural world. I said eco-psychology is about the study and healing of our, that relationship. So this is kind of an assessment of you. You can answer that one. And there's questions at the top to stimulate. The other side includes those areas of those principles that are all actually, I want to say every principle is about reconnecting or connectedness or belonging in some way. And um, you can see which ones you want to answer or answer them all and see what gets stimulated. Okay. All right? Is that clear? So it's an individual exercise? Yes. You're just going to do it, and then you're going to be in dyads to share a little bit about what came up. Well, uh, eight minutes. <laughs> Let's say ten minutes. You're not going to finish it. I just wanted you to get stimulated and inspired and thinking.
remember this is just to sort of prime your pump. You might come up with things that aren't included in some way in this. But, uh, see where you find your purpose and meaning in your relationship with the natural world. Particularly, obviously I emphasize direct experience in the natural world. But whatever has meaning to you.
was turning to someone, finding a, um, a partner, and this isn't going to be highly structured. There's, there's going to be five minutes for you to share back and forth a little bit of what came up for you, what seems important to you, whatever it is you, you want to share, particularly in connecting with a, a sense of meaning and purpose from your experiences. Okay, so shift around. If you, we'll, we'll get you a partner if you don't have one. Uh, Thank you. Great. And do your best. This is a challenging